Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kale and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. Cynthia is out this week. If you are just joining us for the first time, welcome. We're super excited that you're here. Every week, we get to talk to these amazing entrepreneurs that have just one extra thing on their resume, and that's service to our country. And this week, I am really excited because we get to talk to a friend of mine who I've known here in Portland for a long time, and that's Tupton Comerford. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Buddy, uh, we've known each other a while. I mean, I, I came to Portland in 2012, and I think I met you pretty quickly after I got here. And you were one of the key figures here, or you are one of the key figures here in the Portland area, uh, really in the tech industry. I mean, I, I presented at New Tech PDX when we were still at Mercy Corps. Um, and, and I just have been friends with you for, for a really long time. So I'm excited that this is happening. I'm. I love. I love that you're doing the podcast. I'm exciting to contribute. Yeah. So, you know, for those that don't know you, uh, Tupin, I want to make sure that we tell your story in the best way we can. And I want to. Thankfully, you are a fellow Navy vet. You know, we're both. We both served in the Navy, and I, I always enjoy getting to talk to a fellow Navy vet. But for you, what was the process for you when you were thinking about what it, what you were going to be doing, and why the Navy? Well, I. I I don't know that I, I may have a unique um, experience among your guests, but I don't think my experience was, is unique for for um, for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I I joined to get away from home. Um, you know, I was I'm I'm a gay man. Um, I was dealing with coming out. Um, my family did not like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't really talk about it. Sure. And I just living at home was this just impossible place. Um, I was, um, I basically failed out of college, um, and was living at home and going back to community college. And it was just, it was, it was difficult. It was a very difficult time, very emotional time for me. And where was home Um, at the time? I'm sorry. I guess I grew up in Malibu, California. Got it. Okay. And was living in Santa Monica at this time with my parents. And um, the I had no marketable skills. I did not see myself as you know employable in any, any real way. Um, at least to be able to support myself and you know an apartment or whatever in Santa Monica. Um, and there was a navy a recruiting station right next to Santa Monica College, and it was right by this restaurant I would hang out at. Um, so y- Yoshirushi Bowl, um, LA folks will remember that. And um, I would go in there and I'd hang out with the guys and learn about all the things. And um, when it came, you know, push came to shove, it's like, okay, well, I don't enjoy, um, oh, something I left out. I was in the Army National Guard. Oh, okay. So I'd gone, I was, I, my first military experience was um, joining ROTC, which I did as a freshman. Um, I, it was in a simultaneous membership program, which means I got assigned to an army, um, reserve unit. I was in a intelligence, 
um, unit in Bell, California. Um, and did you come from a military family? Like, did your father serve or anybody else? I, f- I thought I did. My yeah. father was, he was between Korea and Vietnam. So he yeah. was too young for Korea, too old for Vietnam, um, as far as drafting goes. And, but I, his brother, um, and, uh, my other uncle. So I had two uncles who were officers in the Navy. Um, they had a, a cousin who was prominent in our family, who was a Navy pilot in the 1920s. Um, you know, weddings, wedding cakes were cut with, you know, the officer saber. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't like people were like, Rob, Rye, you need to go into the military, but there was definitely a proud history of military service. Um, and so when I told my dad I was going into um, ROTC, he was not upset about it. I'm sure. Um, you know, and so for me, it was uh, um, it was something that, I don't know, I, I'm an experienced junkie, I think. I think going yeah. to college without something like that would have been less interesting. Um, but I did not do well in, in school. So um, I got let go from ROTC but I was still um, in that unit. And, you know, we would, you know, uh, bivouac down on, um, down at Camp Pendleton. And, you know, just, it was, it was dirty. You know, army is dirty, basically. You know, if you don't like dirt, you're probably not gonna be happy. And so um, when, you know, I was talking with all the, all four services were at this recruiting station and I was talking with them. And the one program that sounded most interesting was the nuclear power program. And so I signed up for nuclear power school and went um, off and went through my um, boot camp in and uh, a school at Great Lakes. Oh yeah, um, very familiar with it. It's interesting. <laughs> so for those that aren't familiar, like you have to score pretty high on the on the ASVAB to get in the nuclear program. So the fact that you didn't do well in school but you did well on the ASVAB, like did you just did you just test well or is just you just found this really interesting and wanted to make sure you did well. I was, I was, I was, I was basically, you know, in hindsight, looking back, I would, yeah. I would describe myself as a hot mess, um, just in general. And I just did not do well. It wasn't, it wasn't the schoolwork that I had a sure. challenge with. It was life. And yeah. so I was drinking, I was, um, smoking pot. I was not going to class. I ended up with, you know, I was joined a fraternity, you know, he's doing that. I was doing all the anyway. So you were doing the things that the co- you're supposed to do at college, right? But I wasn't going to class, but, and so <laughs> minus the um, class part, <laughs> minus class, right? And so you know, but when I did, and actually when I was um, when I was hanging out at this recruiting station, I was at Santa Monica College. I had a like a three five average at Santa Monica College, um, but that's because I was living at home. I had structure, you know, and stability, and um, yeah, so. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> oh no, I was just wondering, like uh, the the nuclear program, like what what oh, what, right, what was right. it appealing for for you? Why why the the nuclear program? Um, because it was um, it was important. Um, I wanted to be an electronics technician. That's what was interesting to me. But the ASVAB put me in a machinist mate. You know, my mechanical abilities are apparently better than my math abilities. <laughs> and so um, it was a good fit. I'm, I am really good at mechanical things. I understood a lot of, um, you know, the uh, MM training that I went through. Um, the physics portion of nuclear power school was also fascinating to me. Um, 
I love learning. So all the physics and chemistry and all that kind of stuff we had to learn there. Um, but I also was nursing a, you know, alcohol habit. Um, and so, um, I just, I wasn't doing well in school. I was drinking. Um, I was having a, a kind of a similar experience to college. Um, and, but and failed out of school, failed out of nuclear school. Um, got, uh, shipped off to the, um, the regular Navy yeah, the and, fleet. um, was, was a machinist made on a, on a amphibious transport dock, um, out That's... of Shreveport or it was the USS Shreveport out of Norfolk. Oh, okay. And, um, there are worse yeah. commands than, than getting on an amphib though. I think, uh, you know, I, those, those actually looked like fun when I was in the, when, when I was in the service. It's, it, it, it's a small, you know, smallish crew, right? I yeah. think we only have 400. Um, and then you add, you know, battalion of Marines and all their sure. gear. Um, but, um, we actually never, we, I never went to sea. Come on. It's just, I have the weirdest career. Really? So, yeah. So, um, I, the, when I got on board, it was went into the shipyards. And so they had to do all Try kinds of repairs to it. We were just stuck in the shipyards. Yeah. And, um, so the they finished all the repairs, and the only time I went out on the ship on the water was to cruise around the Chesapeake on a little little kind of shakeout cruise. Yep. And um, and that was it. But um, what was happening in the meantime was that um, I was um, too too spit and polish. Right. I considered myself a four O sailor. Yeah. Um, and um, I had some some chest candy from my uh, time in the army guard. Yeah, yeah. Right, and so you know, most people don't have any. You know, at least back then, you didn't get a national defense medal. Right. Um, you didn't have anything up there, but um, so I just I was really proud of you know my appearance and what I was doing, and um, took care of my uniforms, and um, but I was a little too much that and so people decided when i i was reaching out into the community for like just dropping little hints like trying to find the other gay sailors right yeah, yeah. i knew they were there well that was going to be my next uh question was what was the experience because you were in what year was this when you got in this is 85 85 right and so this is way before don't ask don't tell way before you know some of these other policies these controversial policies were enacted so i'm really really curious about your experience so the um, I would go to. I met my first boyfriend just after boot camp. Yeah, um, and um, we got to know each other at Great Lakes, and then he went off to his ship. Mm. Um, the um, when I got to Orlando, I was dating an officer in the nuclear power program in different building officer school. Interesting. Um, and. Um, yeah, it was just, but it was also very emotional. Like you're always terrified of, you know, somebody's going to find out and, oh, here comes the shore patrol. I'm getting arrested. You know, just like, you just never know. It was yeah. just always this very, you know, constant concern, not quite panic, but, you know, just, it was something was really present. Like you could just cart, get carted off at any time. Do you feel like and though, this, then when, because you were sort of like this squared away sailor and you had the chest candy and you had like all these things and you looked like the quintessential well put together sailor that people didn't 
pester you or was that you overcompensating to make sh- make sure that you weren't a target? I think probably both. Yeah. Yeah. Probably both. Um, the, yeah. So I, I reached out into the community when I got to, when I got on board ship um, and hearing about it later, right. They told me the story, like how I showed up and yeah. know, what actually happened, but I just, I couldn't find anybody. It was making me nuts. And so um, it, uh, um, I was getting teased on board. Guys were figuring it out. And um, I, you're not quite harassment, but getting close. And, and I, I was hearing stories about guys, um, gay men being wrapped in deck chains and thrown overboard on their cruises. Right. And I just, that was something I really didn't want. (laughs) Imagine that. Yeah. And, um, and so I decided to, I decided to come out and, I went to my XO and I'd been seeing a chaplain, um, you know, just trying to get some counseling. Yeah. And, um, I went to the XO and say, you know, Hey XO, this is, um, you know, this is really hard, but I'm getting, I'm getting harassed. Can you do anything? So it wasn't really even coming officially coming out. It was just like, Hey, I'm getting harassed by these people and this is what they're saying. And, you know, is there anything that we can do? It's like, no, you know, you don't serve any protections of any kind didn't say it that way, but sure. it's definitely the result. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so great. Well then I, you know, I need to be discharged because X, Y, Z. And I had, um, I had learned what needed to be said in, uh, um, um, what needed to be said in that case, because actually I, I had been investigated once while I was down at nuclear power school Oh wow! and, and had made it through that investigation um, the, the what was that Commodore. experience? What was that experience like? Because if you are like I, I've I've been investigated before in the in the military, but because I went AWOL, not because of my you know sexual preference or you know how I identified or any any of that other stuff. But like, what's that experience for you? Because that must have been intrusive. I would feel very intrusive, like they were intruding on my. Like, why am I being asked all these crazy questions? What would what was that experience for you like? Well, it's you know, I I will tell you, I lied on my enlistment papers. I told them that I was not gay. I absolutely yeah. knew that I was. Um, I thought it was a ridiculous question. Yeah. Um, and a ridiculous restriction. And you know, it's DOD crazy. now agrees. Yeah. Um, but it was. Um, yeah, it was just I knew what I was signing up for. Yeah. Like I knew that that I was pretending, and I knew that there was a risk. So that was always there. But um, yeah, I had had somebody, um, a, a, another gay sailor, um, quote unquote, turned me in. Mm. And there was, you know, this one um, division commander who decided to go on his own personal witch hunt. Mm. Um, wasn't authorized by the command. It sure. was just like his thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was... Um, I was arrested in front of the Commodore's office, which is where I would oftentimes do my work. I was on base base beautification while I was awaiting assignment. And um, the um, I was oftentimes in front of the Commodore's office. And so they arrested me then, dragged me off, you know, tried to interrogate me. Um, but the sailor, the officer that I was dating was maybe two months in front of me in that process. So they were investigating him. Hmm. And... Um, 
the um, so I learned I learned what to say and what not to say. Sure. And so um, I got a quote unquote defense attorney from the JAG office, and um, you know we started talking and and I learned I learned what the investigation was, and they had absolutely no evidence. It was just this somebody said something. Yeah. And they were hoping, and this is something I learned later. That it was, this is what they did was they would drag you in, shake you down, try to get a list of your your gay friends, and then discharge you. Hmm. Um, but I just I did, didn't say anything. Yeah, this was very very quiet and waited. And so they had me on the space beautification team, waiting for something else to happen for you know for them to be able to discharge me. But I and once I found that out, I I went I actually went to the Commodore and did. Uh, uh request mast um with the commodore and um basically said it's like hey you know the navy spent x amount of millions of dollars training me i'm you know sweeping leaves um you know put me to work or send me home mm-hmm. but this is ridiculous yeah and so she um who i assumed was a lesbian <laughs> um you know took pity on me basically and um, reprimanded and disciplined that um, warrant officer. Wow, um, that must have felt good to get a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of vindication. Yeah. Right? So then I got then I got cut off to you know got orders to my to my ship, and then I found out um, a couple of years later that when she retired, she had her party at the officers club, and there was a bunch of lesbians on motorcycles coming onto the base to have her party. Love it. I love it. Yeah, uh, that's crazy. amazing. Anyway, That's amazing. But um, you said on, in, when you got to the fleet, like you were worried that something bad would happen. So how did you approach that process? Like, did you go to the CO and say, hey, I fear for my life. I, I don't think I can be here anymore. Like, what was that process for you like? Well, that was, yeah, so th- that was, took a lot of courage. Oh, I'm sure. Um, you know, just kind of getting that together. And it was the XO that I went to see. Right. Um and well, after and after spending months with you know the chaplain and um, you know counseling twice a week, and it was just weird. Hmm. But um, the once I realized that I just I couldn't do it anymore. I needed I just needed to come out. They didn't they didn't believe me. So the conversation with the XO is like, yeah, thanks for sharing. Go back to work. Irony. You know? <laughs> You know, it's like, okay. But what had happened was apparently about a month before another member of the crew claimed to be gay to get out. And, and so they weren't, they weren't believing me. And so we were getting ready for, um, for a cruise Mm -hmm. and, um, or maybe, I don't know, two weeks out. And then we had a, um, a family day, like, the, tiger know, cruise the, what is it called the tiger cruise tiger cruise yeah, yeah. so we have family day and so yep. they came in and um i i saw the the captain's son who looked to be about 16 years old and and i went straight up to him and hit on him very very hard <laughs> didn't touch him yeah didn't, yeah you know anyway but yeah so i apparently word <laughs> Word got back to his dad, yeah, <clears throat> and so my discharge was very, very quick after that. Um, and what was it that you got? To, was it a, um, a dishonorable discharge, or like what? What kind of discharge well, was that? And no, yeah. So, and this is something that you know that I learned both when I was um, 
in the in the army yeah and when um when i was going through my process in in orlando yeah but um it was um if you don't if they don't catch you like if you're not breaking a rule at the time if you just make a statement yeah then then there's you're just in violation of a policy and so there's no you get an honorable discharge there's no any kind of weird circumstances the only place it shows up is on my dd214 yeah and it says stated is homosexual or bisexual with with the policies that are there now can that be stricken from your dd214 i could i could probably petition i've I've heard of rehabilitation things that are you know happening um yeah, and it's and and it's it's not a problem for me, right? Yeah. But w- what ended up happening was when I came home, I went back to school, and I I was doing well, right? I did yeah. got my life turned around, and um, I I was involved in the ROTC, well, the ROTC protests, and so campuses that had ROTC programs um, were discriminating hmm. against gay students and there were the universities had non-discrimination policies. Right. And so we were trying to, I think ROTC is valuable. So I actually didn't want it to move, but we were saying, Hey, you can't have ROTC on a campus that has a non-discrimination policy. Yeah. yeah. And this is something that Bill Clinton ran on that he would make this all better. Um, and in the, in the run up to that, I was working with, um, funny I, was, I i came up against the commander of the rotc um as a colonel and we had really great conversations about homosexuality and what it means and like he understood the policy was bunk but yeah you know like what can you do just following orders uh, just following orders <laughs> and um yeah but um so i got involved in in it was my student my actually the beginning of my student activism yeah was around that and so uh and by then yeah, what what year is this uh late 80s early 90s 80, 87 oh wow yeah oh man and um so hey can so i just say a, one thing you look yeah. amazing i at 87 i was in middle school so you look amazing for your age i just want <laughs> i want to put that out there so that. so congratulations yeah it's all that's all that salt air that i got on that cruise around the bay clearly clearly yeah yeah see for that, me i had that, i had 267 total sea days in three years of service so you see i'm aged very well more, more advanced age even though i'm you younger yeah uh when so you that, yeah go ahead sorry that, that was the beginning of my student activism and um i uh i, I stood up and the TV cameras were there and, and I came out on local, it was local TV, not national TV, but, um, so I came out and that was, um, that was a challenge because my family lived in Southern California yeah. and all of a sudden like they knew, but they, and they quote unquote didn't care. Yeah. But like their friends were calling saying, Hey, did you see on the news today? Right. <laughs> and so I knew that if I were going to be active on that subject and be out and um and in you know in the media yeah that it would be easier on my family if i weren't in la Mm. and so i moved up to the bay area which is where that activism is a lot more appropriate which is where i I met bill clinton he promised me he was going to get rid of get rid of the policy yeah he didn't he didn't say he was going to do it by 
codifying it. Yeah. No, he, <laughs> a, he did don't ask, don't tell, which is such a passive aggressive way oh, of God. like putting a policy together. And, and, you know, I, I served in the mid, mid to late nineties. And so that was when that policy was in place. And I knew a couple of gay sailors and I, I think at that point, when you get in there, there was this, there was this, it was really interesting. There was this influx of a new generation of sailors coming in that were my age that were much more progressive and just really didn't give a shit. Like just if they want to serve next to us, who cares? Like it doesn't matter. And then there were these old school folks like the master chiefs of, of, and the, you know, the chiefs and the commanders that were very old school and just like very gregarious and manly. And we ought to do this and carried their cup with the six years of coffee stains in it. And, <laughs> and that it just, it had this weird intersection and I was on a much smaller boat. We only had 250 people on our boat. So it was, um, it was one of those situations where it's like living in a, in a small house where like somebody, something happens to somebody and, and everybody just knows, right? Cause it's yeah. a small boat. When you got out and you started doing this activism in the Bay area, what did you what did you learn about uh i don't know maybe the process of which led you to entrepreneurship like what was that your first sort of jump into entrepreneurship i had um i had had a an entrepreneurial streak i was always i was the kid who sold the most you know caramel peanuts for the ymca <laughs> camp i yeah, was yeah. I sold the most advertising for the student uh you know government fundraiser at the end of the year um, I was, I was, I was definitely enterprising. Um, <clears throat> and so, um, I, I thought I wanted to go into business and mm -hmm. business classes were very boring. And I saw how I really did not see any connection with the real world. And so I didn't go, um, down the business school route. I ended up studying English. Mm. Um, and I, I learned to write. And I write, people say, do you use your English you know, education? It's like, I absolutely do every single day. I write, you know, 20, 30 emails and they are very well written. <laughs> That's funny. You know, yeah. it's just lots of writing. Yeah. And um, so the the business part, I I had become, I don't know that we want to get too much into this, but I got a, um, I was a monk, Buddhist monk, which is where my name comes from. Mm -hmm. um, and um, when I came back from India, I had a hard time getting a job. I'd worked in, in high tech in, you know, like at Apple and Netcom and AOL. And um, I came back from India and I could not get a job in any company. And I have to believe that it was at least in part because I had a shaved head and red robes. Um, but well, there was I, probably I, a large I, gap too, right? How long did you spend in India? I, well, I, I was, um, I was only, I was traveling in yeah. India um, on pilgrimage for six months. Yeah. Um, and, the um, um, the need to support myself, uh, monks and and nuns, at least in the Tibetan tradition um, here in the West, you have to be either independently wealthy, or have a sponsor, or have a job. Hmm. And so, you know, I was trying to find a job and I couldn't. Um, and so I had to start a company. So I looked at what um, monastics do in in Europe. And they make things, right? So they make beer or cheese right. or something, and they sell it. And that's how they support themselves um, is by making and selling those products. Like, well, th that was Silicon Valley. What are we going to make? We're going to make code. Yeah. And so um, I had attracted a bunch of high-tech 
monks. Um, we rented a house kind of a la Silicon Valley, a uh, five bedroom house down in Elmendon Valley. Um, and by the way, that's the co- most Bay Area thing you've ever said so far. Yeah. That they're Silicon Valley monks. It's Is that a huge community? I mean, that seems like a very niche, narrow group of folks. Well, and it's funny because I was called an internet monk. I was very active on internet IRC. Monk. That's awesome. I was very active on IRC before I went to India. That's how yeah. I stayed connected here. Um, I had uh, worked at Netcom, which is mm-hmm. an internet service provider, one of the early ones that's now part of Earthlink, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and had developed that uh, that reputation within the online Buddhist community. And so the people who were into tech in the Buddhist community were people, you know, they, they would just find me. Yeah. And so when I came back from India, I basically said, okay, I'm in Silicon Valley, planted a flag, let's start something. And so we had people move from all over the U.S. to work at this company. We, it was a basically a, a BSD shop. Um, we were doing network engineering, um, building out um internet networks mm-hmm. and landed a giant contract through um through the government of uh, thailand wow and moved our head it was a silicon valley uh i don't know fairy tale for a while yeah, yeah. and at the end it's a nightmare you know but um <laughs> at the beginning it was really great yeah and we you know we had an office in um in bangkok and um yeah it was it was i learned a lot you know, yeah. I was very young, very um, new, didn't really have a mentor and um, kind of bouncing around. But um, I learned a lot. So yeah. that um, that experience, I afterward, um, just, I disrobed. So I was no longer a monk, um, swore off Silicon Valley and technology, um, moved to Arkansas, lived with Arkansas. one of my students for Holy six mackerel. Why Arkansas? Because um, nothing happens there. <laughs> This is true. <laughs> I wanted, you know, and I, 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 I am, am really sensitive to, um, to ideas. Mm-hmm. So if I hear an idea, my mind goes, you know, it takes it in every yeah. possible direction, yeah, yeah, you know, just instantly. And so living in Silicon Valley, I would hear, you know, in the checkout line at Whole Foods, I would hear six earth shattering ideas. <laughs> right just checking out from the grocery store it's too funny i mean the valley at that time and maybe it's still that way yeah right? just it's just alive with that energy yeah. and anything is possible and here let's look boom and so my brain would just take those things so just existing was exhausting yeah and so for me i needed a place where nothing was happening there were <laughs> there was the rose law firm TCBY and Dillard's. Those are the only three things at that time that were in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah, yeah. And it was great. It was peaceful. But six months in, I got the bug, um, moved to Denver to start a network security company. Wow. Um, uh, WesternUnion.com, Playboy.com, and Egghead.com were all broken into and around the same period. Yeah. It would have been um, early 2000. Yeah. And I decided that I was going to save, save, save people's websites from hackers. Right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so I moved to Denver, started that company yeah. and built that there. But, um, you know, it's just, I, I don't like working for other people if they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, or if I know better what they're doing and they don't listen to me, it's probably better. Right. <laughs> well, I think and, there's a, I think there's a commonality amongst entrepreneurs that make them really hard to employ, which is what you just touched on is that they feel like well, I could do this better or there's a more efficient way to do this. I'm just going to do it myself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. And so, um, being, um, being an entrepreneur in Denver, it was during, um, uh, we had just signed a lease on September, um, 10th. Oh, (laughs) right. And, you know, and who knew what the world was going to be. But for me, you know, when I saw, you know, the horrors of September 11th, um, I immediately thought, wow, we really need more security. Sure. And, and this, you know, an a- obvious initial reaction. Yeah. But we could not find companies that agreed with us. I bet. Who were willing to pay, right? They said, yeah. sure, we're, we don't know which, you know, what's going to happen. And so we don't want to spend any money we don't have to. And right. you are definitely not essential. Right. Um, and so we had a really, really hard time. But during that time, I landed us on the cover of Computer World magazine. Wow. Um, two Januaries in a row. And that was through that experience of, of getting our media, our earned media, that I realized I really liked marketing. Yeah. We're talking to so, uh, Tupin. I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be talking to Tupin Cumberford uh, from Buckman Bryans. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. And we're back. We've been talking to uh, Tubton Comerford of Buckman Brines. He's been kind of filling us in on this move to Chicago or move to uh, Denver, not Chicago. I almost said Chicago. Uh, and right in the middle of things that were basically exploding, which was not only buildings, but the the tech industry was imploding basically. And so, yeah, so we, we got, um, we got some notoriety. We did a, um, an assessment, a threat assessment on yeah. Denver international airport. Um, a little bird had told us that American airlines had, um, <clears throat> had these, I don't know if anybody was flying American in the uh, uh, early two thousands, um, would remember the mobile kiosks that they had at curbside hmm. and they would roll these kiosks out to the, out to the curb. You could check your baggage right there. Um, and it was wireless, hmm. but it was unencrypted wireless. Oh, and so they were, they were running all of your driver's license, credit card, flight baggage, all that stuff, information in the clear, no encryption. No bueno. And right. And nobody was paying attention. And wow. so we got this little bird, um, told us and so we went and we did a, a full assessment on the on the airport 
And that's what got written up in Computer World. But it was through that experience that I realized that I, I was definitely more into marketing than being a big tech CEO, right? right? I mean, it was dealing with investors and raising money and all that stuff is just so exhausting. It is. And I just, I didn't want to do it anymore. It's yep. like, okay, we're done. I'm going to go be in marketing. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I set up a, a, a marketing agency. In the meantime, I got into tax prep. Um, I did. I had a lot of different kinds you, of businesses. You've done some Mor- things, sir. Mortgage broker. Wow. Um, all kinds of things. And you mentioned earlier that, that you learned a lot of things. What do you think is the best lesson that you've learned through all these processes like what do you think looking back if you can go back to young tube tin and say hey you're gonna be an entrepreneur make sure you don't fuck this up like what's that what would that advice be for you um well for me the the lesson lesson that i got out of um my experience in the navy was that i can i can deliver Mm -hmm. right i can i can get up on time i can get up you know i can prepare myself and my clothes. I can get a job done, you know, and um, I can show up and I can get it done. So for me, having that self-confidence was, was critical. Yeah. So that I knew that if something happened, I can fall back into my, into myself and, you know, and deliver. Um, That's probably the the best, you know, the best lesson that I've, that I've gotten. Yeah. because I, I take it with me all the time, right? I just know that I'm I am capable. Um, and if I hadn't had those challenges, yeah, um, I wouldn't have learned that. I probably would have still been capable. But you know, just knowing that is um, is comforting. That I I know that I can provide for myself and my my family, if, you know, if I need to. Yeah. What about in your entrepreneur stuff? When when you're when you've gone through these different businesses. How, what, what's the biggest lessons you've learned through these processes that you take today? And, and how did, how did you go from technology and marketing into the food industry? Cause it sounds like you've always had an, an, an interest in this, but the leap was the, the question, right? Yeah. So, um, when I came to Portland, I set up, the first thing I did was I set up, uh, what became new tech PDX. Um, and we started meeting after beer and blog at the green dragon. Yeah. Um, and, um, I, I then started doing my, I did my social media marketing, um, for repost media. I was involved in the community and, um, I like to have, this is just something about me and my personality. I like to have a lot of things going on. And so, um, if I had a job, so my primary business was social media marketing, but I had, I had the meetup. I had, um, eventually I had my cooking show yeah. that I, I developed. And then part of the cooking show was my supper clubs, which I would do, you know, 30, 40 people for, you know, five course Italian feast. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to do those from time to time. And then I had my fermented foods, which I branded as part of my cooking show. Um, but I would have almost always I'd have three to six projects in the works that I'm taking incrementally, you know, little steps with each one. Um, when I take a break from whatever my primary, um, activity Mm -hmm. is. And, um, 
so I had my, um, I closed my social media marketing agency a year ago, June, hmm. and um, went into doing uh, new tech full time. Um, did that until January and had a um, managed my partner's cleaning company for several months until COVID. Yeah. Um, and so the cleaning company went completely away because of COVID. New oh, tech man. is on an indefinite pause because sure. of COVID. Yep. Um, our last dinner um, was in February and that's not going to happen anytime soon again. Yeah. Um, and then the cooking show was scheduled to uh, shoot the pilot in March, third oh, week no. of March. That got and that's not happening, right? Yeah. And so here I was, I had five different things and one of them was still viable. So I had uh, somebody order a, a case of pickles in the middle of you know lockdowns, like he wanted to share with his family and friends. Thought that was great. I brought him his pickles, word spread. Um, someone ordered two cases for somebody I'd ever you know, sold you know, three cases of pickles in a week. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it exhausted my inventory at that point. Wow. And, um, somebody else heard about that and ordered another case. So I'd sold them. These are not inexpensive pickles. These are $20 jars. Right. And so that's almost a thousand dollars worth of pickles in a week without really trying. That's insane. I shared about, I shared that crazy, but I shared about that with, uh, a friend who is a realtor. Yeah. And he does client gifts. And so um, he said, yes, I, I would like to buy your pickles. Um, I do 80 closings a year. Um, I give three gifts. So to each person. And um, so it's 240 gifts times however many jars. Yeah, right? yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot it's of a jars. Lot. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. But I wanted in I wanted in a gift basket. Interesting. And so um i said yes as i always do and you know <laughs> figure it out later um but we we've started delivering gift baskets as well wow. and so when i saw that i could do as a marketing program right the pickles are amazing we're basically a vertically integrated marketing company that that does client gifts right. of fermented foods so i produce my own product and i do the gift sales what did you know um, about the process before did you know anything about fermenting vegetables before i've been i've been fermenting um about 15 years okay um and i you know had the but for myself and if i you know i have always cooked for an army and so when i make stuff i make gallons yeah um and usually i can't eat gallons or didn't want to store gallons so i share yeah and um i put i branded um, my pickles and, you know, put a little sticker on the jar when I share it. And, um, it was just kind of a fun hobby. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I, I had, it's probably an intense hobby. It's probably the, you know, I, I was, I was very interested, um, and, you know, developed some, some skill, um, at, you know, getting flavors sure. together, but for the, for the cooking show, I had I had done a culinary program um, and and learned a lot, learned yeah. a lot about about flavor and how to construct dishes. And so I bring that knowledge to, you know, constructing the flavor profile of uh, the fermented foods. What 
for all of these different businesses, there's got to be that sort of jumping off point. You identified a need in each of the ones. That's the common thread I'm, I'm getting out of all these things. But when you start a business, how hard is it for you to find, say, that first customer or even worse, the second and third and so forth and iterate on that? How Before you started a company, did you have a customer base in mind or was that something that just came after the business? Something that I've done um, a lot is I, I find guinea pigs who are willing. Yeah. And, you know, with the network security company, um, we found one of the largest managed services, uh, managed IT services in the country, and they were based in Denver. And I basically offered to do our service for free mm-hmm. for any of his clients, um, you know, for up to however many right now forever. And so we we demonstrated our skill. Yeah. And here's you know somebody who we gave things to. So for me, building the reputation as somebody who produces fermented foods, I had been doing that already. Yeah. And giving giving these you know ferments away. Sometimes people demanded to pay me because they were so good. And so that's like I had an inkling. Um, but what I did was I when I when I launched this, I knew because I was I've been participating in an organization called. BNI, which is Business Network International, hmm. and there's 50-some um, chapters in Oregon and Southwest Washington, hmm. um, more than a quarter million members around the year, around the world, Wow! Um, doing just hundreds of millions, if not bi- actually multiple billions of dollars a year in um, referred business. And so I'd been, I knew that I, I would be able to launch into that. Yeah. Um, and those were some of the people that I'd been sharing with. And so, you know, I, I'm probably one of the own, one of the few food producers in BNI. Oh, interesting. You know, BNI is most, usually a chapter will have, you know, insurance agent, sure. um, realtor, hairdresser, car mechanic, that kind of stuff. But food producer is, you know, unique. It's not something you'll yeah. find in every chapter. Um, but I knew that all these people eat food. They all like, you know, things that are delicious probably. And, you know, if I share enough, people will learn to like it and they will refer. Yeah. And so that's really how it's gone is people, you know, they just have, have shared. We're moving, um, a case, a case and a half, um, a week right now, which is not a whole lot. No, that's it's a lot you for know, a small producer, but it's it it works, and you know I've been assured several times as I've been you know putting this all together and asking for advice um, from you know key people around town. Say, like, hey, what do you yeah. think? Um, that uh, actually getting to the point where you're selling product to people, you know, officially legally is it's a big deal. And it's yeah. just very few people get this far. It's like, I'm, I'm proud of what we've accomplished so far. And I just know that, um, that we're going to, that we're going to grow. And I'm, I'm using all the, all of my experiences in every other business I've had yeah. to, to put this all together. Yeah. It's amazing. And for those that don't know, Buckman is a neighborhood in Portland. So for that, for that reference, that's where we started. Yeah. yeah that's where yeah, I was yeah. living in Buckman. So about a year ago, we moved to Vancouver um, but I, I kept the, yeah. the fer- fermentation station uh, firmly entrenched in East Portland. 
I mean, it just fits. Buckman Bryan's at that. It uh, rolls off the tongue perfectly. Where do you hope this thing goes in the next five or ten years? Like, what are you, what are you hoping that this becomes? I, I, I'm hoping we become the Harry and David of fermented foods. Nice. I like that. Nice. Uh, Tubetune, where, where can people find this? Where can people find you online? At, at the time of this recording, <laughs> um, our websites are not yet ready. Okay. Um, but they will be soon. Um, giftpickles.com okay. is the e-commerce site. And buckmanbrines.com is the brand site. And, yeah. um, and then you have yeah, in, uh, Instagram and some old other social media, right? In, I'm spending most of my time on Instagram yeah. um, these days, specifically around the fermented foods, which is just... Uh, my handle is my first name, T-H-E-B-T-E-N. Yeah. Buddy, I'm so glad we got to do this. This is so much fun. And, um, you know, hopefully when we get back to normal, we can go back to doing new tech PDXs and hanging out and seeing each other at the local founder poker game. And, yeah, I just I miss hanging out, man. I miss hanging out, too. I yeah. appreciate your invitation. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Guys, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Listen, learn, get shit done. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.